When he was only 13 years old, Jovanna's life was forever changed through a chance meeting with Survivor's Jim Peterick. As Joe will tell you, Jim taught him everything he knew about music and the music business. But it wasn't until he was 28 years old that he discovered his voice. But when he did, he became Peterick's in-house demo singer for many years. Joe and Jim eventually created a band called Project Voyager, which ultimately became Mecca. In 2002, Mecca released its debut self-titled album that featured David Hungate on bass, Shannon Forrest on drums, Fergie Fredrickson and Joe on vocals, Mark Aquino on guitars, and Jimmy Nichols on keyboards. Nine years later, Mecca released their follow-up, titled Undeniable, and on October 14th of this year, Mecca released the band's third album, Mecca 3. Here to discuss the new album is Mecca's Joe Vanna. Hey, Joe, thanks for traveling uh, down here from Chicago to be with us today. Yes, good afternoon. Yeah, good afternoon. <laughs> yes. That's right. That's right. To give context to this, yes. He, 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 he exists in Chicago time. <laughs> That's right. He's when an hour behind us. He's fresher than we are right <laughs> now. Yeah, but I, I drive to Nashville enough to know that it's an hour off. So yeah, okay. <laughs> I was on time. Yeah. Hey, as we were chatting just a couple minutes ago, um, we talked about uh, we you were at the last Toto show here in Indianapolis when the guys were here for a couple shows. And yes. uh, we did not have the... The, the luxury of, of meeting you, but we connected, but we never got a chance to chat with you face-to-face and to, to meet you and to chat a little bit. But Right. I had talked to John, too, Marshall, and uh, you know he kind of kept me up to date what was going on, but I, I wasn't <laughs> able to hook up with him either. It, the rain was just so bad. So like I said, we got here for the show, and there was no way they yeah. were able to have it. Yeah. Um, the parking lot wasn't the issue. The issue was where they were going to park them in the, in the dirt, in the mud, <laughs> so the cars would have gotten stuck. Yeah. So, yeah, so we just booked out. We just hung at night and then uh, got together with everybody during the day, and then uh, we left. So, yeah, we didn't see you guys that next night. Well, good. You yes. guys had a table or something for that, yeah, right? Yeah, we had a couple of tables. We had a couple of tables, and we had a lot of uh, listeners and, and friends and stuff that came in. We had a, a couple of tables each night, so mm-hmm. it was a fun time. Yeah, I know a lot of people that came in for the show. They all loved it. So Yeah. Actually, mm-hmm. I even heard – I didn't hear one bad review from that whole – the whole tour. Yeah. Yeah. And usually I'll hear a couple. Yeah. There's always, I know so many musicians and actually all my friends are musicians, but some are so bitter and they always look for the bad and everything. And <laughs> there was nothing to be found exactly. on this tour. Well, I'll tell you, the, the I don't know, I, I went to another show a couple weeks later up in Cleveland and mm-hmm. at the Hard Rock. And, and that show in Indy, though, maybe it was because it was outside, maybe it was to just the thickness of the air because it was humid or whatever. I don't know what it was, but it sounded so good. The show, the show in Indy sounded so much better than the one in Cleveland. I mean, just just sonically, it just sounded so impressive that night. So. Well, yeah. I think a lot of it, to be honest, you know, spending time with you guys on Friday night after it had been canceled, um, you know, Luke was really upset that it yeah, that it was. got canceled. He was. And, <laughs> you know, a lot of people don't realize it's like, oh, they get paid, they don't care. No, they do care. Um, they want to play. You know, they really wanted to play. So they were really hoping they were going to be able to play Saturday and you know to really bring it that night. You know, and they did. They they have a certain level they play, and then I think they have a little bit of an overdrive that they have in reserve, and you guys probably got that on Saturday night. Yeah. So yeah. I think they tried to make up for it. Oh, yeah. It was, it was great. Yeah. Well, anyway, we're glad you're here with us um, to talk about uh, the brand new album. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. Mecca Thank 3 you. is out. And uh, so eight solid tracks that are just they're excellent. We've been talking about the, the quality of the recording engineering, but we'll get to that in just a couple of seconds. Mm-hmm. But uh, great, uh, great to have you with us. Thank you. Well, this is your third album for Mecca, obviously, Correct. and the first was back in 2002, and mm-hmm. then Undeniable came out in 2011, and uh, of course, Mecca 3 is coming out. What's the release date? Is it October 14th? It's Friday. Friday yeah, it's 14th. Friday. Wow. Right. 
But before we dig into this new album, we want to get to, to know you a bit. And uh, many of our listeners are familiar with you and Mecca, and, uh, and, but some may not be. And so mm-hmm. we, we want to talk about you for, for a little bit. And you're, you're a Chicago boy, right? You're mm-hmm. born and raised there? I've never lived anywhere else. Really? Yeah. Right. Interesting. Yeah, but, I mean, I've, I've toyed with it. I almost moved to L.A. in 92. And I would have been I, right on your heels because I was thinking about moving there. This yeah, night. <laughs> I I lived I lived two weeks a month at the Sunset Marquee Hollywood in West Hollywood, uh-huh. and two weeks a month in Chicago. Okay, um, I had a young son, but I was doing a ton of work with Fender and uh, Universal Studios. I was doing the okay. huge stand-up displays that they oh, did. Cool, cool. And you know, so it was back and forth, back and forth. Um, I did that for about six years. But I was going to do, you know, just make the full move, but it didn't work out. It just didn't happen. And you know what? I'm, I'm glad it didn't. I don't think I would have acclimated very well. Are you a Midwest boy? Yeah. It's, it's just a different way of looking at things. Yeah, it it's is. Not, right. You know, everybody's all the same. Yeah. But we just look at things differently, and there's a different way of looking at things out there. And, uh, yeah, I probably wouldn't have fit in real well. <laughs> well, I'm assuming that you grew up in music. We always ask our guests this, but your parents, were they, were they musical? Um, was no. Your, no, really? So you no. In fact, uh, my first show when I sang live, uh, my parents came to the show with me. They thought they were just going to the show. They didn't know I was in the show. <laughs> is, uh, that, is that yeah. Joe? Is that Joe up there? It, it gets, it's a little, a little bit weirder than that. Uh, Joe, get down off of there. Joe, You're not supposed to be get up down there. here. Well, I'll just tell you the story real quick. Um, I had been working with Jim Peterick as his in-house demo singer for about. Six or seven years at that point. Yeah. Um, did a ton of movie soundtracks and a ton of stuff with him. And uh, if people aren't familiar with him, he's the guy who, from Survivor who wrote right. The Eye of the Tiger and wrote a ton of hits for everybody, 38 Special and everything. Right, right. And uh, Jim had got me into music, got me started in it. Um, and that was by accident as well through Fergie Fredrickson. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should start there. Um, I never sang professionally until I was about 28 or 29. Um I had never sang in front of another human being until I was 28 or 29. Holy cow. Um, I wasn't the guy in high school running around in bands, uh, wasn't in choir, wasn't in anything. Um, I was an artist, so I did album covers. And I knew Dennis DeYoung. I knew the Cheap Trick guys. I knew everybody from doing record cover work. Yeah. And I was in the film business and the print business. So um, I would take care of getting all their CDs done and everything, you know, the production end of things for them. So Fergie, who I got to be pretty good friends with, was living in Minneapolis at the time. And uh, I met Fergie actually online in 94. Um, He had done a a record with Ricky Phillips. And I had bought it, and I saw a thing on there, so I went online. And next thing I know, I sent an email into it, and it went directly to him. So he uh, gets back to me. We're talking back and forth. He said, oh, you know Jim Peterick? I said, yeah, I know Jim really well. Um, he said, I'd love to write with him again. He says, I sang on the Eye of the Tiger. And I says, what do you mean you sang on the Eye of the Tiger? He said, yeah, I sang the backgrounds on the Eye of the Tiger. Really? Which a lot of people don't know. That was Fergie. And yeah. so I talked to Jim, and we brought Fergie in. They wrote together for the record. Fergie was sick. He wasn't feeling well. Um, you know, later we came to find out a lot of it was from the Hep C. Mm-hmm. So the song was really high. They wrote two two tracks, and I said, "Well, I can go in and sing it." And they're laughing. They're like, "No, no, this is really high. This is you're not even a singer." I says, "Well, I could just let me try. Sing in the car, and this and that." They're they're laughing. They're just <laughs> dying. And so Jim goes, "All right," he said, uh, "Sure, we'll let you let you have a try." And they're just 
they they're I mean if there were video cameras then in phones, yeah, this right. would have been a YouTube moment for them. <laughs> so Jim walks me in the room, gets me behind the mic. I didn't know what I was doing. And I'm standing there and I'm waiting. He closed the door. I'm just sitting there looking around. I go, I'm ready. I don't hear anything. I go, I'm ready. I don't hear nothing. So <laughs> Jim comes walking. He goes, uh, you got to put the headphones on. I'm like, oh, oh, all right. I didn't know what those were in there for. So yeah. um, the track starts playing. And I knew the melody because I'd been listening as they were writing it. So I laid, went, went into the track, laid through, just did a full pass. And again, I didn't know what I was doing. So I hear on the – and then it stops and I don't hear anything. And I'm like waiting. I didn't want to say anything because I'd already embarrassed myself with the mic before. Mm-hmm. And uh, I hear Jim come on with the, the headphones and he goes, uh, do it again. I said the same way. You want me to – he said, just do it again the same way. I'm like, okay. And I'm thinking, okay, he didn't like that very much. <laughs> so went ahead. I did it again. And comes in the headphones. He says, come on in. So I took him off. I went in there and I was expecting to get waylaid with stuff. And uh, – you know, Jim got mad. He goes, man, he, he says, all these years, I pay all these guys all this money to, to sink, cut my demos, and I could be using you. <laughs> okay. And I still didn't really have an idea what was going on. So cut the song, laid it, laid it out so Fergie can bring it back to Minneapolis and work on it mm-hmm. and uh, learn it. Um, it was one of the two songs that, that was on his uh, Equilibrium album. Okay. And it was the song... Uh, I think it was actually Equilibrium, that track. So um, a week later, Jim calls me up and he says, what are you doing? I says, I'm at work. He said, can you come by tonight about 5 o'clock? I says, yeah. So I came over and he goes, I want you to try singing this. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know what harmony was. I didn't know what a third above and fifth and ninth. I didn't know anything. (laughs) I just have an ear where I can, you know, Everything with me was always by ear, yeah, sure. and it still is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will get into that too, the way I write. But um, so he he played me the thing, played me the part. I really th- I thought the song was great, and I says, "Man, who's that on bass?" And he goes, "David Hungate." And I was like, oh, "Okay, you know, I'm like a total freak." Right, right. And I'm like, "I'm singing on a track that David Hungate's playing." <laughs> I don't care who the artist is, which yeah. it was the Beach Boys, by the way. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know, and I didn't care. I was more. Yeah. To me, David Hungate was playing bass. Exactly. I didn't care less about all the other guys that were on it. Right. So uh, Jim had laid the lead part down. I went in and did all these really crazy high um, background vocals. And um, then I had to learn what a third was mm-hmm. and a fifth, and I still didn't get it. So um, I just went ahead and pounded and pounded and pounded on it. Got it done in maybe about an hour, hour and a half, did all the different parts. Yeah. And that song is uh, That's Why God Made the Radio, which was the Beach Boys hit mm-hmm. from a year and a half ago. Yeah, so a week after I started singing, I was doing Beach Boys stuff, and I was working cool. with everybody with Jim, um, everybody. So that's kind of how I got my start um, singing. It was by mistake. So, the, that, so that's a singing part. Yeah. You play an instrument. You're an instrumentalist. You play guitar. Not well enough to – how do I put this? Uh, I can shoot a gun, yeah. but I'm not Jesse James, so let him do that. <laughs> okay? So I can go in. I can play piano well enough to write the parts. Okay. I can play guitar well enough to write the parts. Mm-hmm. But when I write, I sit down with a keyboard player. Mm-hmm. That's how I, I like to write. I see. Sit down, and I'll uh, – usually I'll start off with a melody. I'll sing him a melody that I have. We'll work our way around that, and then I will literally sing him chords that I want him to play. 
You sing the chords, yeah. That's it. That's yeah. how I do it. And you I don't know. It. I don't know what the chords are. Right. Um, and it's weird because I hear modulations. Mm-hmm. I hear all these things, and but I don't know what any of it means. It's just mm-hmm. random. And notes you can in sing them out. You, the, right. Not the a transpositions problem. anything like not that. A the, the... And a lot of that was due to again with all those years of working with Peterick. My ear got so trained to. Him with an acoustic, he'd hit the note. That's where I was supposed to sing that part for the song, yeah. and I would it would immediately lock into my head, and I knew that's where I was supposed to go. So, um, but I have no formal training at all. So, when you said you you like to uh, write with a the keyboardist, yes. is there a specific keyboardist that you prefer working with, or does it just depend on the project? I mean, is there somebody you're really comfortable with? Well, I mean, I started off with Peterick, mm-hmm. you know, so I started right. off uh, pretty good. Right. With uh, <laughs> he's great and. I worked with him for a number of years, and I got so c- comfortable with working with keyboards that I moved with a guy named Brian Moritz, who's out of Chicago. Uh-huh. Um, Brian's got a band, Balance, which is like Rod Morgenstein and Dave LaRue and those okay. guys. And um, But he's a really great keyboard player. So, But I have that relationship that I'm real comfortable with Brian, so he'll come over, we'll work, and I'll sing on the parts, and off he goes. Um, usually I like guys that aren't classically trained. Because the classically trained keyboard players get, you know, paralyzed sometimes because they have so much knowledge in their head of where they want to go. Exactly. Their hands never get there. So for me, um, I like working with rock keyboard players because they're a little bit freer in the way they play. Mm-hmm. And literally, I can sing it and they'll play that instead of giving me 28 inversions of things that I don't know what they're trying to play. <laughs> that makes no sense. That makes no right. sense in a song. It makes sense if you're doing a prog rock thing where you want 58 changes, but it makes no sense in, in a, the form of a song. So, yeah, um, yeah I got a couple guys. Uh, Bill Sinar I wrote a lot with on this album. Um, Bill had some songs on the first Mecca record. Um, he wrote You Still Shock Me. Um, and another, Blinded by Emotion, he wrote that as well with okay. Peterick. Yeah. Um, but that was when he was the bass player in Survivor. Mm-hmm. And then he and I become real close friends, and we wrote a lot for this last record together. Um, but he's a bass player. But again, he's a great keyboard player, so we can write together that yeah, way. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, like we said a minute ago, your, your first Mecca album was released back in 2002. Right. But the band, you actually created it back in 1999, and you called it right. Project Voyager. And, that was, and, <laughs> and you, for, you, you formed the band with Jim. Peterick, right? Right. And um, but but Jim, you know, other than being you know a musical mentor, he was he became a true friend, and he was even there for you during some difficult moments in your life. Yeah, he was he was a friend before anything else. Yeah. Wow. Um, I met Jim when I was thirteen. Yeah. Uh, at right, a music right. store, I was building mm-hmm. a guitar. <laughs> Um, I was always kind of an eclectic kid. You know, most kids are going to want to learn how to play guitar. They're not play guitar. I wanted to build one and then learn how to play. Yeah. <laughs> Neither worked out very well. <laughs> so. Yeah, but anyway, the uh, I met Jim then, and he had given me his uh, address because he used to see me in the store all the time, and he'd see me with little parts, and he'd come over. I didn't know who he was. He was a goofy guy with big glasses and a fur coat, and I had no <laughs> idea who he was. And then finally, after maybe about six or seven times of meeting him, the guys at the store said, do you know who that is? And I'm like, no, but he knows a lot about pickups. <laughs> so... Um, you know, I got to know him, and he gave me his address. He said, come by anytime you want. Ride your bike over. Literally, I was 13 years old. Yeah. So I used to ride my bike over to his house, and I heard um, I heard the whole the whole record for Vital Signs. I heard that before anybody did. Um, I heard the original acetates at his house. He'd have me over. I'd sit down, and I'd hear The Search is Over. I'd hear yeah. um, you know, I Can't Hold Back. All these songs before anybody had heard them. Yeah. And, well, obviously not the band. But um, got to know Jim very well. And, I mean, hell, when I went away to college – 
he sent my whole floor CDs and T-shirts for the whole floor. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah, not, yeah, that worked. That worked out nice. But um, you were the popular guy on your floor there at camp. Yeah, it worked out nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you mentioned John Marshall at the start of the interview, and he's yes. a good friend of ours. And mm-hmm. um, he he actually, I wanted to thank John because he absolutely he, he sent us in some some pretty insightful questions. And this one, he, he said the tune Mecca. Yes. He said uh, was the the first song that you and Jim finished for what would be the debut CD. Right. And um, was this tune the inspiration for the the band name change uh, from Project Voyager to Mecca? Yes. Now here's another little trivia fact. Uh, Project Voyager was actually the original name of Survivor. Ooh. Did you did you say Project Voyager? Voyager. <laughs> Good. No. Don't that, confuse me. That, that'd be bad. Did you say Voyager? Or Voyager. Voyager. Okay. Voyager. Right. Project we Voyager. We need to clear that up just <laughs> yeah. to, you know because. Well, yeah. anyway, let's go on. Project Voyager uh, was going to be one of the original names they came up with for Survivor. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, so I okay. stole that. You know, they didn't use it. So I was going to maybe use that. <laughs> and then that was what I was going to call it. And I, I remember I had – actually, when I did the first demo CDs, it was that was the title. Um, Jim and I had wrote Mecca together. And the day we finished that, I said, that's, that's the name of the band. And he didn't buck it at all. He thought it was a great idea. And then 9-11 – um, happened right before we released the record. Okay. And the label, Frontiers, was begging us to change the name, and I wouldn't do it. Hmm. And I said, listen, it's it's not used mecca. This isn't being used as a place. It's being used as a thing. You know, it's more as an adjective versus right. a noun. So um, I stuck with it. Yeah. But that's, yeah, it was, from, it was from that song that we got the genesis of the name. Okay. That's yeah, interesting. So, Very cool. So, so you worked with Jim on the on the first project. Mm-hmm. Then there was a span of time that nine years, that nine years before uh, Undeniable came. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a uh, yeah, it's so, <laughs> so there was this little gap of time uh, before it was released in 2011. Right. And um, Jim was part of this project, the second one no. or not? Tell, no. Tell us why no. why wasn't he involved? I never get asked that. Um, well, <laughs> I might as well. We had – there were some issues after the recording of the first record. Um, Jim and I had been friends for, wow, 15, 18 years probably at that point and were very close. You know, I'd gone through a divorce through the process of that. I, I used to go by his house every night, hang out with him and his wife. We'd play board games. We'd hang out and do stuff. Um, and everything was great. And then when the business stuff of – Mecca happened. That's when there was a little bit of butting heads. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it was the business end was me because I was new. I didn't know the business. So things that are standard in the music business that other people go, wow, that's crazy. But musicians look at it and go, that's no big deal. That's what the music business is. I didn't understand that. So I caused him a lot of agita at that (laughs) point. Um, And I think a lot of it was from mixing of the record. and the production of the record. I was there for every session that, that happened for the recording of that record. Um, you know, usually producers like to work, have the guys come in, cut their parts, and then tell them to get out of Jodge, let them do their thing. Yeah, yeah. I, w- I wasn't allowing that because I had a certain sound in my head that I wanted. And it happened from, you know, we, the songs were written the way I wanted, but once we got to the studio and recorded with Shannon and Hungate, everything changed. Um, you know, we had a really straight beat for the song Mecca. It was just a 4-4, just a straight survivor beat. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Shannon heard the beginning chords of it. And Shannon, like, you know, I didn't know Shannon from Adam before that before that day. Right. And he goes, uh, man, I don't hear it like that. He says, I hear it like this. And I don't remember whether it was 
I'm just going to say Jim liked it. I don't remember if he did or not, but we we went at it, um, gave them their head. You know, Hungary had a lot of influence in what happened with that first record. Really? Okay. And Shannon did. Um, I had made a decision that day. These are these are the guys, you know. Um, and I remember leaving home or leaving the studio that night, getting on my AOL account <laughs> and uh, emailing Luke and said, I just found Jeff. And he had known who Shannon was through Hungate. Oh. And I yeah. said, this guy's a freak. Yeah. He's really a freak. Um, but it was – they really changed that record. It was a real straightforward Survivor-sounding album that ended up not being when it was done. There were songs that had that Survivor feel to it, but it had – it was like a, the ugly redhead stepchild of, of Toto, where it had the elements of Toto in uh-huh. it. Um, and that was because of Shannon and Hungate. That was because of nobody else. That was them. Oh, yeah. you, you mentioned that connection to Jeff and, mm-hmm. you know, through Shannon's playing. And uh, uh, a couple of years ago, I've, I went down to Florida to see Toto at the Seminole Hard Rock. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the sole reasons I went down there is because it was the first time Hungate had been back, you know, mm-hmm. in quite a while, and and um, so I, I caught an interview with him, you know, like in between the, the the sound check and the show, and that was one of the first things he said when we were started when, when I asked him about playing with Shannon, and he goes he goes all I have to do is close my eyes and I just I can feel Jeff there with Shannon's playing, and it's it's true. <laughs> I think I think a lot of fans, everybody loves Simon. It's, it's undeniable. Simon Correct. was such a great drummer, but. But Shannon just has that Jeff – Simon's sound is so different. It's so yeah. huge, and it was just a different sound for Toto. And it eventually fit, and it eventually had a cool place with Toto. But when Shannon gets behind the set, it, it's, uh, it's got that – he's got that Jeff groove or that feel. Yeah. I think the neat thing with Toto fans is we all have our own take on Jeff versus Simon versus – I'm not even going to say Keith because he was uh, just there for a breath. But, right. um, and then Shannon. Um, Simon and Jeff were their own drummer. Now, what I mean by that is they had their own sound, Mm -hmm. completely their own sound, Mm -hmm. and they had legions of people trying to copy that sound. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think neither of them, it was possible to replicate their sound. Mm -hmm. I still to this day say there's never been a drummer that can play Rosanna exactly like the way Jeff played it. I think there's two or three guys on the planet that can come really close, and Shannon's one of those, um, the way he does it. Um, But that's because Shannon is actually – if you really listen to his parts, because I've spent so many years just isolating his drum parts, he's 50% Jeff and 50% John Bonham. Mm-hmm. And if you put those two guys together, mm-hmm. that to me is the way <laughs> Shannon is. That doesn't mean he's either of those two guys. It means he's like – it's like he's parts of two of the best drummers that ever were and he's got both of their best qualities and now you have this super guy that now has that. That's yeah. what I really think Shannon is. Mm-hmm. Um, and because he's such an amazing producer and has those ears, um, that really makes him a hell of a threat. Uh, Simon, I hate when I hear people say things about Simon that are you know incorrect and just uneducated opinions. Mm-hmm. Um, Simon's one of the world's greatest drummers, probably the greatest drummer at what he does. No doubt. And if he wouldn't have joined that band when he did, you tell me they'd still be going? Yeah. Exactly. He kept them going. He produced he records for them. He pushed. He's a, an amazing player. I think he was the right guy at the right time. Yeah. We can all argue whether or not he played the parts right. right. He played him his own way. He didn't play Rosanna the way Shannon plays it. He didn't play it the way Jeff played it. Right. But damn it, when you saw him live, it sounded great. <laughs> sure did. So it does, you know, we can all grab and say well, this triplet or this or that isn't exactly. It doesn't matter. He played it right. 
mm-hmm. know, and I love the way he played for that band. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they've been very fortunate with the guys they've got. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you don't go from Hungate going and then suddenly Mike Pecoro is just there to pick up a bass. Mm-hmm. And then Mike goes and you get Lee Sklar. Mm-hmm. That's your next guy. And Nathan East. And then Nathan East. <laughs> and then back to Hungate. Yeah. And even David Santos, who played with them for a Whisper there a couple of years an amazing bass player. One of the mm-hmm. best players in the world. Mm-hmm. It's every guy they get. Top yeah. notch. Yeah. yeah. It's, but Toto's been a, is a magnet to that type of excellent player. You know, people, I can imagine people in the, in the session world look at that because uh, they're the ones that really respect Toto. They are. When you go to Think a Toto it, you know, show, 85% of the people are what? Well, of course. You know, I, I was at the Ryman <laughs> show, okay, right oh. after the evening. Uh, yeah. went over there and uh, flew down with uh, Richard Simile, who is uh, listening probably right now, a good mm-hmm. friend of Inside Music Cast. We flew down, and uh, I tell you, that show, they were playing to their peers. Oh, they didn't they were hold playing to anything their peers. back then. And yeah. I tell you, they, they played their butts off. But I, I tell you, that was the, the, that was the performance of, of respect when Nashville, who's who, comes out, and, and there's total playing to their peers. Can you imagine if... If that building would have blown up, yeah, <laughs> there'd be nobody left. Rick and I would be playing on all the albums now. And that's scary. Trust yeah. me, on my end, that is. I went to the last show at the Ryman in 1999, okay. the the one where David, with when he came back, and uh, I took a picture. They ended up on their official website for a while of, mm-hmm. of Hungate and Luke, and that was a really special moment because we didn't know. We didn't know. Luke didn't tell us that Hungate was going to be mm-hmm. there. They kept it a secret. That was a very well-guarded <laughs> secret. Yeah. But it was Hungate right. that in- introduced you to Shannon. It was. Or guided you to Shannon. Without Hungate, I wouldn't have known Shannon. Yeah. Because I wanted Eddie Bears because of the name. And then I did a show with Eddie, um, and I met him at the HD Planet show that Brent Mason was on guitar and Michael Rhodes on bass. And I talked to Eddie, and I said it was a Toto bass thing. And he even said, he says, you have to get Hungate. I mean, you have to have Forrest do it. He said, he's the guy you want. He says, I'm a, I'm a good drummer. He's a fantastic drummer for yeah. that. And I'm like, wow, okay, Eddie Bears just said it. And Hungate <laughs> had been pushing me on, on uh, you know, using Shannon. Mm-hmm. So I got a disc, or not even a disc, I got a DAT tape that Shannon sent me from uh, Buddy. Remember Buddy Hyatt? Uh-huh. Buddy had done a, a couple tours with them on Backgrounds. Well, right. He had done, done some country stuff with Buddy yeah. and sent me these demos. And I was like... What is this? It was just it was country stuff, and I'm like, yeah. oh no, we are in trouble. <laughs> and and so even the day I got to the studio, I was like, oh no. And uh, you know, here's this skinny kid. I, it's great, I can call him kid. He's like what six years younger than me, but but uh, you know, and he's setting up, and I'm like, oh no, I don't know this kid from Adam. And and they they wheel in his snare. Uh, casket or whatever they call those things mm-hmm. and he opens it up and there's 20 snares in there and I'm like <laughs> all right all right and he's telling me which ones jeff would have used or this one i'm like okay now i like this guy <laughs> and uh and it worked out great That's so cool. but yeah hungate yeah hungate has such a part in this because he literally introduced us to shannon which changed the way the first record sounded which without that i don't think it would have ever done as well it did and uh that's why it was so important, I think, to get everybody back for this last record. Yeah. I think if we probably would have brought you down here and just had a discussion about Toto, we could probably sit here for three or four no hours. And, yeah. But we got to get back to, mm-hmm. to you and to Mecca. <laughs> and, and John Marshall uh, also has another uh, question that he wanted me to interject, in, mm-hmm. and it's about Jim Peterick. And it, yes. He said, despite your early earlier established friendship, right. uh, initially 
he wanted to know was it initially t intimidating seeing how you know he was or is so established you know and a successful writer and but but I think here's his question what lessons did you learn from him and, and which ones mm. do you carry closest to you now with three albums under your belt we taught me how to write um, you know, there's no ifs ands really or buts about it yeah um, I think I would have always been a decent writer I would have never never gotten to where I am without him mm -hmm. um, taught me everything I knew about about singing parts, mm -hmm. about uh, ear training, mm -hmm. um, what works, what doesn't. Um, there are some life lessons in there too, I mean, because we spent a lot of time together. So, I mean, really it was, uh, I owe a ton to him. Um, probably about 90% of me being in the industry was because of him. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I could, it's not a kind of thing you repay or could, could repay. Um, it was that mentor um, student kind of relationship, but it worked out really well. I just ran into him, you know, a couple weeks ago at breakfast. Um, we live like less than a mile apart from each other. There's like a <laughs> weird triangle. It's Dennis DeYoung, me, and Peterick. We all live within like a nine iron of each other. <laughs> and it's funny because in Chicago, there's not a lot of, you know, bigger musicians. And yeah. Burr Ridge, there's, there's those two guys right next to each other. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, Jim, Jim pretty much taught me everything. And about the music business, I did learn some of the bad parts of the business. I learned the good parts of the business. And I learned that the, the bad parts of the music business outweigh the good parts 10 to 1. Mm -hmm. But those one, the 1 out of 10 is worth it to deal with the other 9. Yeah. So I know it sounds kind of strange, and I don't know what everybody does for a living, but if you go to work and 9 parts of it's bad, 1 parts of it's good, no, not many people are going to do that job. Yeah. But with music, people gravitate to it. They'll do it for nothing right. to get the one part of it that is fulfilling to them. Exactly. Right. So, you know, that's that's what the business is. Yeah. Well, Mecca's been a sort of a passion for you for the past years. Mm -hmm. And and it's obvious that we can sort of hear, and you, you've written about this, about the inf different influences that that have crossed your path, you know, as, you, as you've grown as a musician. Mm -hmm. Toto, Mr. Mister, you know, Survivor, right. as we've said, yes. Um, you know, uh, classic, the classic AOR sounds, you know. Yeah, um, West Coast. More yeah, West the Coast, West Coast yeah. stuff, you know. But throughout the life of Mecca, you know, how have you found your own voice, your own sound, and and where, where does the influence stop and where does your sound take over? What would you like to, how would you describe that? Uh, I think it's pretty simply stated. Uh, most guys in my age that are doing classic rock bands are trying to sound like the bands that they liked. Mm -hmm. I want to not sound like the bands that I liked. <laughs> yeah. um, I want to make sure that whatever we're doing is something that's independent thought. It's not something that we're lifting from somebody else. I felt guilt for years because the song Mecca, the drum pattern, was so close to the I Will Remember pattern from one of the Toto records, Tambu. Um, I wanted to make sure that we were different. So uh, it's, it's very important to me that we have our own sound. It really is. I mean, the last record was different than the first. This record's different than the other two. Um, there's a, if you listen to the three together, there's a growing process there. The first record was pretty polished, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. very kind of standard in the way that the songs were laid out. Um, the second record, I decided to show everybody in the world how I could be a producer, which was a really big mistake. And I added tons of parts to the songs that didn't need to be there. Melodically, the songs were great, but I added things that did not have any business being in the song. Did you overproduce? A hundred times over, yeah. I overproduced the record. There wasn't one second of space yeah. 
in those in those mm. twelve tracks or eleven tracks. Yeah. And this, I it was a conscious effort this time. I remember sitting down with Shannon saying, "This is what I want to do for the next record. I want space." Didn't have any on the last record, and he was the one who brought up when he listened to the second album. He said, "Yeah, vocals are good. You know, this is good. That's good." But you know, he had a long list of things, and they were all things that I agreed with. So um, I really did learn how to craft a record this time versus making a CD. Um, it's a whole different. It's a whole different ballgame. Well, hey, Joe and Eddie, uh, if you guys don't mind, let's take a break, and I want to play a track from Mecca Three. And this particular track happens to be uh, probably the one I've gone back to the most. This is a favorite of mine on the album. And this is a track titled Gone from our guest today, Jovanna, from the new album Mecca 3 on Inside Music Cast.
tell us about your lineup because the musicians that you've got mm-hmm. on this new album. I mean, it's we can talk about these guys forever. They have a um, yes. still pretty serious in how it's uh, how the lineup has evolved over the the three albums. Too. Yeah, well, the first Personnel. the first record obviously was Shannon and Hungate and Jimmy Nichols on keys. And then Mike Aquino, who was my guitar teacher, by the way, uh, hmm. on guitar. Cool. And I brought him in. I hooked him up with Jim, and now they've been working together 20 years. Mm-hmm. And the second record, I went in a little bit of a different direction. I worked with a Swedish songwriter um, and player and got put back about two years because I paid him to work on the record, and all he sent me was the demo tracks, and I couldn't get him to send me the isolated left and rights without effects. Mm-hmm. And Luke got involved. And he tried to get me the parts. He couldn't get them from the guy. Uh, so I ended up having to re- re- rework all these recordings. Mm-hmm. Then after we got them reworked, the guy that was producing the record with me died. <laughs> okay. It's like, oh, this stuff is oh my so bad, people are dying over it. So, <laughs> so we went ahead and I had to re-record the record, in essence. Oh, my God. Um, so we recorded again. Did it with Chuck Masek, a guy I grew up with, and Mark Alano, another guy that I grew up with. And I had Pat Mastoletto on the whole record with Levin, and I ended up canning 90% of what Pat played and you know, <laughs> and, and some of the Levin tracks too because I had a different vision on how I wanted the songs to go. And it was completely the wrong direction. I listened back. I have a disc, and it's Pat's tracks, it's called. Mm-hmm. And it's the original demos with Pat playing drums. And they're breathtaking, and they'll never see the light of day. And, I mean, they're just ridiculously good. And Pat brought so much of who he was into those recordings, and I was being short-sighted, and I wanted to make a left turn for left turn's sake. Not what's best for the songs, but just based on I was going to show how good I could produce, and I ruined it. Hmm. Yeah. That's why the second record to me got great reviews, but I disagreed with just about every one of them. Wow. Interesting. I don't know if you if we talked about this earlier, but did we talk about the connection um, to Shannon? Was it David Hungate that connected you to yes. Shannon in the first place? Yes. So did you? How did that happen? Did you already mention that? Well, I had done. That's why God made the radio with Hungate. Right. So I knew then Peterick knew Hungate. So I had Peterick hook me up with Hungate, and we were setting the record up. Um, Hungate was our first call, mm-hmm. and uh, and then we had called a guy to do keys. Um, the guy from the band Giant, great player, mm-hmm. um, but he wasn't available. So then Jim called Jimmy Nichols, and then Hungate said, you got to have this kid, okay. Shannon Forrest. And yeah. that was it. That was that. Well, speaking yeah. of Shannon, you know, he's credited with producing the new Mecca 3 album, yes. I think. And uh, we know he's an amazing drummer. We've talked about mm-hmm. that. But you know, what did Shannon bring to this project that stood out you know, for you that differed from the other two Mecca projects? Um. I respected him enough to not do things my way. Okay. And that's not easy for me. No, that's, that's hard um, for anyone, yeah. You know, when you write a song, you hear it a certain way, you want it that way. Sure. In your mind's eye, that's the way you want it. doesn't mean it's right. It's the way you hear it. Mm-hmm. Um, I needed a personality that was big enough that would be able to push me kind of to the side and say, don't do this. This is the way we're going to do it. And that's what I did with Shannon. People don't, you know, people don't realize sometimes, I think, how many producers are drummers and there's a reason for that, I think, because everything for them is based on feel, not time. Feel, not based on right. cut into a grid, the vibeless, soulless technology of the world that has <laughs> ruined the music business. Um, 
you know, every record that I can hear now, when I can hear that it's cut straight to the click and there's no swing and it's lifeless, vibeless, soulless crap. And, you know, it sounds like it's done in some guy's garage. Mm-hmm. Um, that that was part of the reason why doing this record, we didn't want to do it that way. I wanted a record that sounded like 1985's production sonically, not the direction we went, but sonically. And to do that, you got to do it all real. You can't use a ton of plugins. You can't auto tune everything. You can't you can't you know have have a drummer who's got fifty edits throughout his drum pass. Mm-hmm. So this record is eight songs, but it's eight single passes of drums. That's it. Yeah, that's all there is. There's not one drum edit on the record. There's not one sample on the record. There's nothing. There's no post compression on the record for the for wow. the drums yeah, at yeah. all. Wow. Um, I mean, if you listen to the finished. Mixes that we did, that's the masters. Well, I got to tell you, it's not compressed. It's nothing. After the first two or three tracks I listened to, that was one of the things that came to mind right away. Was was it's a really great sounding album. Yeah, it yeah. sounds really good. And um, the you mentioned a second ago too about Shannon that you said that you needed a, somebody with a personality big enough to, you know, to sort of take you away from your comfort zone. Right. In a, in, a, in essence, so I've we've met Shannon a few times, and sure. you know we've talked to him, and he's. And he's he seems kind of like a shy character when you meet him. He he doesn't really show up at the uh, you know at the sessions. And you know when you talk to him, he seems very nice and mild mannered. But um, he's 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 got a big personality. You're saying he yes okay. Um, <laughs> I think Shannon has a lot of respect for the situation he's in right now mm-hmm. with the guys that he's working with, yeah. mm-hmm. and he's not going to tip the apple cart. Yeah, and he's not going to go in there like a bull in a china shop. I should be doing this. I should be doing that. He's their drummer. But when you put him in place as your producer. He just just let him go. Um, he's an amazing mix engineer. Mm-hmm. I've talked to a lot of very heavyweight guys in Nashville think he's the best engineer in Nashville. Well, like, he, he grew up with it, though. He, yeah. His dad owned his the dad. studio. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. I mean, he did his first paid session at 11 or 12, I think it was. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, but he, he has those ears. Mm-hmm. And... So that's that was the one reason I'm like, okay, he knows what I want. Um, he knows how to get there way better than I'll ever know how to get there. Yeah. I just proved with the last record that I can make a good sounding record that doesn't have any room. Um, let him do what he's got to do. And it was part of the thing we sat down. He said, if I'm going to produce, I need to produce. And I'm like, oh, yeah, no problem. Well, we had we butted heads a couple times in the process at the beginning. I'd call him up. I'd say, hey, I had this guy do these parts for the – he's like, what? I said, yeah, I had this guy. He played keyboards on this. Yeah, no, you don't have anybody play on anything. He says, I guess it's all going to be done through me. Yeah, but this stuff is great. Okay. Anyway, so those, none of those things really made the record. But, um, you know, so I had to learn there's a process to do things. There's the right way and the wrong way. And the wrong way was the way that I would normally go um, in the way of getting something done on the record. Um, you know, I can, I can sort of, uh, you know, as musicians going into a studio and being the creators and being, you know, um, trying to spearhead the sound of eight brand new little babies you mm-hmm. know, that are yours, you bring in and and to g- offer them to somebody. I mean, it, it really just reinstates what, uh, you know, I think Al Schmidt told us this a while ago. He goes, they have to trust me. Now, Al Schmidt is not a yes. musician. No. But Al Schmidt told us, he goes, they, have, they trust me. Of course. They trust me. You have to give it away 
and let them take care of what, what you've done. And I think that's a huge thing that it seems to me that, you know, looking at your history of progression from the first album to where you are now, there's a, there's a, no, a new level of trust with people that you uh, can uh, let them go with your babies, if you will, mm-hmm. and, and help you make something of it that, right. that goes even beyond your capacity sometimes, you well, know? Look at the first record. I mean, I worked with a producer that I wrangled with yeah. um, who I'd known forever. Right, um, but I wanted things to sound a certain way, and to this day, I'm not unhappy I did that because I think the record in the end sussed out what I wanted. But bottom line is, and then the second record I produced with with uh, Chuck and with Mark, but you know I was trying to ramrod that process, and it it just wasn't good. Um, you know, just because a guy can write doesn't mean he could sing. Just because a guy can sing doesn't mean he can write. Right. And just because a guy can do both of those things doesn't mean he could produce. Mm-hmm. And you know, I still believe everything's based on little silos and everybody's got their talent in certain areas. You don't find a guy who's talented in all of them unless it's Shannon. But you know what? I don't think Shannon could sing, so got him there. But but otherwise, <laughs> everything else he can do. Touché. Yeah, everything else he can do. He really can. Yeah, he can. Yeah. And, you know. And um, so that was the thing with Shannon, that I knew that he wasn't just better than me. He was better than everybody. So I'm just going to let it, let him have it. And he did an amazing job with the musical tracks. And as far as the vocals, the vocal production, that was mainly my son. Yeah. Really? You know, he's 20 or 25 now. But, um, you know, I record all the vocals at my house. All of them. Interesting. Just like I'm sitting here. I sit down in front of my Neumann. And and I just sit there by myself upstairs, and I punch myself in, and I cut through the track. And he, I would then – he'd get home from going out with his friends, and he'd come home, and he'd listen to it, and he'd tell me what was good, what was bad, and then he'd go to bed, and then I'd work more through the night. And then I'd get a final track the way I wanted, and then I'd recut it that way. So that's how I cut the record. And you know, background parts, he'd pull parts off that I liked. So really what was on the record from a vocal standpoint, um, I sang it, but the vocal production was him. Interesting. You know. Yeah. Well, let's talk about your tracks. I mean, we, we mentioned your, your tracks being your babies, if you will. So all, there's, all there's eight of them. That's all it. All eight are your babies. And let's yeah. start, uh, Take My Hand, Unknown, Alone, mm-hmm. Gone, Cry. A lot of one-word babies here. Uh, a Kiss on the <laughs> Wind, Let It Go, and the last one, Believe. Yes. Now, every writer has... His, uh, how can I say, um, you know, it's uh, his own creations, okay? Mm-hmm. But on this album, do you have any little stars of these that you are like, I'm, I'm partial to this track or that track or another one? Sure. Or are they all equal? The, which ones do you really hold really close to you? I think so. the, the great part about this record is not one is the same. Mm-hmm. You've heard the record. Do any yeah. of them oh, sound yeah. the same? Of course not. And it's weird, but it, it worked out that way. There is a track on this record I think is the best song I ever wrote. Um, I think all eight are the best sounding things I've ever worked on. But there's a couple tracks, yeah, that kind of stick out to me. Um, Gone Mm -hmm. was one of those tracks that – there's a slide at the beginning of the track. The long gate? Yeah. Now, that's – you pull that out when you produce the record. I wanted that in. Yeah. I wanted that sound of him when he just sat down and just yeah, from ran. the very beginning. Because yeah. there's no edits. That's right. him playing the That's song. Him. Yeah. I wanted everything he did to yeah. that slide to be yeah. on there. Yeah. Um that song was the my my favorite song sonically on the record. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm not gonna bring up Toto anymore. I bring them up too much in my life. Sure. <laughs> but that was the most Toto moment I think we've ever had on a record. Yeah. Um, for me, feel wise. Yeah. 
uh, Alone is probably the best track I've ever written. It's understated. It's melodically it works. Lyrically, I love where the song goes. And then Take My Hand, which is the first track, mm-hmm. which is, the I think, most radically different because just a really straight-ahead yeah. riff-based rock tune. <laughs> um, that song, my, my buddy Richie Hofer from the band Seventh Heaven, he's got about 6,000 songs at his house. And by the way, I, that was 6,000, I'm really not kidding, of songs he's written wow. that he has just musical beds. He has over 6,000 musical beds. That's insane. And <laughs> it is insane. And so we're going through stuff. I was looking for some riffs. I heard that one, and I and I said, "Can I use this?" And he said, "Sure." So we built a song around it. Um, the song "Kiss on the Wind" mm-hmm. that's written by Richard Page. Yeah. Right. So right. you know that's the first song ever on a Mecca record of all three of them uh-huh. that wasn't written by one of the guys in the band. And why did you decide to, to choose that particular yeah. track? I'm curious. Oh, I chose that the, the day I heard it six years ago. Yeah, that's a I says if I ever do another record, I was just finishing Mecca two. Mm-hmm. And the Swedish guy that I had worked with, with uh, I'm never going to say his name. Please don't. He, uh, no. he, <laughs> yeah, he um, wow. Uh, <laughs> we can go on and on with that. Let's try to avoid that. But he, um, <laughs> he had played me this song, and I was just, you know, dumbfounded after yeah. I heard it. And I heard it again and again. And I begged him, please give me a copy of this. So he did. Um, and I says, I'll play this song for nobody, no one will ever hear. Yeah, that lasted about two days. And I played it just for some friends of mine to listen to. And everybody said, that's, that's a great song. I knew I had to record that song someday because I knew vocally he took that song and, you know, it's a complete Richard Page vocal. But I wanted to take it. I heard things I wanted to do that I was going to do. And it would be like, okay, I can do a Richard Page song that I could sing my way, but it's his song. Mm-hmm. And so I did it, and I asked him. And he said, sure, go ahead, cut it. And I'm like, oh, thank goodness. And um, that, if you notice, that song has no drums right. and no guitar. Right, exactly. Um, that was by design. I wanted something that was stripped back, and it'd be like, okay, the fans of Mecca and the bands that I like, they listen into the recording. They don't listen to the songs. They listen into the recording, sure. listening for this and for that. And there's yeah. the word nuance comes to play mm-hmm. with the fans of our type of sure. music. Mm-hmm. We know how to listen to a song and listen to what the guys are trying to do. Exactly. The bass player is trying to convey a message with what he's playing. We know that he's doing that. Totally. Nobody totally. else does. The drummer's doing this because he wants to accentuate this. They're very well put. It's yeah. all dead. Nobody does that anymore. So yeah, right. um, I wanted a song that was going to be based on the melody first. And then musically, all the music, the only thing that's on there is just support that melody. That's it. Mm-hmm. I wanted nothing else on that track. Because I think melodically, it's my favorite song I've ever heard in my life. I love the melody of the track. I didn't want to put a bunch of background vocals, anything. I just left it as... Here's my lead vocal, and here you go. When you so. finished it, did you have you let Richard hear it? Oh yeah, you? he heard it in the three incarnations I had. Because um, okay, and I'm not going to get too far into this, but like the second record, I had one song that had 16 recorded versions of the song. Wow! <laughs> and so that whole record, I had like minimum of five different demos. Of each song. Wow. And then I picked the ones I wanted, and that's how I created the record. Again, another problem I had. <laughs> but um, I sent it to Richard. He liked it. And then I sent him the new version. He really liked it. And I'm like, okay, good. I'm done. Right. And I left it alone. Um, he liked the key change. I threw a key change in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I always modulate stuff. <laughs> and you know, I, I love the way Richard's voice sounds when he goes up into the higher registers. Um, it's a lot like mine where there's not really a bridge and it doesn't thin out. 
it stays heavy, but it goes up. Mm-hmm. Um, and he didn't do that in that song. And I'm like, oh, I wish he would have done that. So I added that. I um, and he dug that. And I was like, oh, thank God. So if he <laughs> said, oh, that key change, I don't think that's a good idea, I would have been crushed had he not liked it. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, that record I had to do. I mean, yeah. it was. it's not that it was a template for the record, but I knew on that record um, I had to do that track. Yeah. Well, Joe, you know, I, uh, this is a very cool rendition of Richard Page's track, and uh, I'd really like to play this one if you don't mind. And uh, let's pause for a second, and let's play the track uh, written by Richard Page. And this is A Kiss on the Wind, and this is the rendition by Mecca from our guest today, Joe Vanna. I saw the truth in your eyes I saw Stood together. I will always think of how it might have been. So blow a kiss on the wind, and like a picture that you draw with your finger on the water, it starts fading right before you turned around it's no longer we are here and then gone with not much to lean upon and love's like a kiss on the wind it's funny how this world turns around Your heart is found And now I let you go And now I let love in I'll blow a kiss on the wind Like a picture that you draw With your finger on the water It starts
you talked about we just talked about the the, the purposeful playing of the musicians. Mm-hmm. There's a reason why. Yes, every he plays note. this. He, he there's yes. a reason why this. Yes. Well, we've talked about Shannon. We've talked about Hungate and their purposeful playing. There's a couple other people I want to mention, you know, that maybe you can tell us about Tim, Tim Akers, Akers. Yes. who does all your keys and that type of thing. A phenomenal Nashville presence yes. forever. And uh, yeah. in fact, uh, we're big fans of, of, of his smoking the section. Smoking section. Yeah. I mean, the guy's out, out of this world. Tell us how you Another met up freak. with him. Another He's freak another in freak. a way. <laughs> yeah, talk to us about Tim Akers and how he what he put to the table. Tim's here. Shannon. Um, I had, when we put everything together, I had a couple guys I wanted to play keys on it, and Shannon said no. No, no. Every name I said, he said no. I mean, it wasn't even like a thought about it. It was just no. And it was like, I got a guy. He'd be perfect for this. And it was Tim. Um, And again, I didn't know Tim before the first day of the first session. We got to be friends right away. We're very close now. Um, He's, I think he's on the level of a couple of our favorite keyboard players. Mm-hmm. We'll put it that way. Mm-hmm. I think he's one of one of those guys, yeah. if you will. Oh yeah. Um, and there's not a lot of those guys anymore. <laughs> no. um, he has those ears, and the way he plays, um, I don't know. I just think there's only four or five guys on the planet that do it like that, and he's one of those guys. And on top of that, I don't know if you know uh, track eight, which is believe. He's the other vocal. Oh, really. really? He's the other vocal, and the, the, the second verse Beautiful. is all Tim. Wow. The backgrounds on Unknown is Tim. Gone, he's in the back of there with me. Wow. Um, Tim's one of my top ten singers, period, and you would never know. He yeah. is a frightening singer. I go see that smoking session like, yeah, they're great, they're great. Why isn't he singing? <laughs> and he he's so adamant on wanting to give a stage for all these other players that he doesn't want to do too much with himself. And I'm like – just sit behind a piano and sing, yeah. right. and people will line up right. to hear. He won't do it, and he's just a, a phenomenal singer, yeah. phenomenal singer. So when you go back to believe, listen to that. Um, oh yeah, it's, he's just frightening, but an amazing player. Uh, David Browning um, did a lot of the synth work, mm-hmm. and and the hard part for that was cutting that to tape. You know, arps and stuff. Everything's got to be to the grid into this. Well, we had exactly. so he had to make sure he was hitting everything right as he needed to hit it. Um, did a great job. He's he does a lot of production work in Nashville. He started with Katy Perry when she first was nobody, when she was mm-hmm, Katie mm-hmm. Hudson. And uh, he's got a lot of funny stories from when she was 15 and 14, 15, Stop 16, right there. So. Stop, please. Yeah. Yeah, I know. No, no, no bad stories. No bad stories. <laughs> no Katy Perry no, 15 no, no, stories. No, 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 no bad stories. But she was a Christian artist then. Yes, she was. That's, That's right. He, a long he, time ago. He produced That's the record roots. that exactly. she was a right before she got her yeah. big deal. That was him. Yes. And uh, oh, he got the fun shaft on that one because I mean, here she she got huge after yeah. that, and she's still really nice to him and everything. But I mean, God, I wish she would have kept him for all this other stuff. It would right. have probably been better. Um, well, there's another guy um, actually that plays with Tim Akers. He's Gary Lund. Well, well, Gary Lund, yeah, <laughs> G- Gary Lund's already in yeah. there. But there, there's this like this group of the the, the nucleus of, yes. of Nashville that I always like to think yeah. of. The guys that played with Amy, uh, Michael mm-hmm. Marty, and Charlie Peacock. You know those guys, and of course you you end up with Gary and John Hammond, but mm-hmm. Mark Baldwin. He's been oh, a he's perennial a force. The guy is beast. such an amazing guitarist. And uh, talk this to us is, about this is like his first rock record really because this is so i'm like that's <laughs> mark baldwin i'm like that's mark baldwin that's, yeah um take my hand which is that really edgy yeah, heavy yeah, edgy. that's not him that's sal uh phil cox littlefield who was brought to the country by brent mason and i think he lived with brent 
and yeah. he's a, a little um, – he's a, about 25, 26-year-old kid from the UK that I think Brent had saw him in some pub and brought him to the country to be a player. And he's an amazing, amazing player. Mm-hmm. Um, Mark does a lot of the rhythms and a couple of the leads on the record. Um, he, was a t- he was a really fun guy to work with. Um, he added a lot to the process. He would – he definitely took a couple of songs in a little bit of a different direction guitar-wise. Um, I always joke, you know, Mark plays the expensive chords. Yes, he does. Yeah. And and that's and the, the money thing. chords. Yeah, he, I mean, he really plays those things <laughs> that you'd love to hear, but you don't even sing it to him because you're like, oh, wow, that works. Um, he's he's got a, just an, an almanac when it comes to the his talent level, um, theory wise, on the guitar. Yeah. And he's one of those guys that, even though his theory is so strong, he doesn't get paralyzed by it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's again, I. When I do sessions and the guy says, oh, I have a degree in – oh, no. Oh, no. Um, Name all your favorite players. They don't have degrees in music. That's right. They have degrees in working into songs, and there's a difference there. Yeah. So Your son, Joey, uh, he helped you out on this album, too. He plays guitar, right? He did a lot on the second record, too. Um, Did you ever think you'd you'd have an opportunity to make music, you know, like this with with your son? I mean, that's got to be pretty fulfilling. Yeah. It started when he was about 14. Mm -hmm. Um, Frankie Sullivan had – I was working a lot with Frankie. I was rewriting. I wrote a whole record, a whole Survivor record with him that's never seen the light of day. Oh, wow. Which I still say would be probably the their top two or three best records, mm-hmm. and it'll never go out. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. But it's okay. It's, it happens in the You never business. know. It may. No. No, it'll <laughs> never go out. But um, Frankie was always really good with Joey, and Joey wanted to learn how to play guitar. So... Um, whenever Frankie was over, he was always showing Joey things, and 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 so then I got Joey a guitar, and he started, and he took to it really fast. Hmm. Um, Luke was always really good to him. In fact, uh, it's a funny story I've said it a bunch of times, but you know when Joey turned twenty one, he wanted a he wanted a Luke guitar. Yeah. So we had seen Luke about maybe three or four weeks before, and Joey was joking about, yeah, I'd like to get one of those Luke guitars, but they're expensive and this and that. Luke sent him one for his birthday. Wow. So when he turned 21, Luke sent him a guitar. That's crazy. And it was like the last <laughs> of that model of the old Luke's. It was a, it's a beautiful guitar. Yeah. And now he's got four or five of them. But, but that one he doesn't hardly play. That one just sits in a stand at the house, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's had, he's had a lot of advantages because when I, when I worked on a lot of the records, he was always there. When I did sessions, he came with me. Um, it was just him and I from the time he was nine. Mm-hmm. Um, I had gotten divorced and I had – not only full custody, soul custody, everything. He never saw his mother. Yeah. And um, so, you know, it was always him and I going to sessions. So he spent a lot of time. He's a great engineer. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew prime when he was about 18 that he was going to be a, a force to be reckoned with. He's a great singer. Um, but he's got, again, he's got those ears, mm-hmm. which, again, uh, kids his age don't have besides, like Ethan does. Shannon's son, Ethan. Yeah. He's got those crazy ears, mm-hmm. too, that the kids nowadays don't have because they don't listen into music. Right. They're not – I use the word thoughtful a lot. These are thoughtful players. When they're, think, when they're recording a song, they're thinking of what that part and how it's going to impact the relationship of the song and the emotional content of the song. Right. People don't do that anymore. No. And they do. Obviously, on Mecca 3 – Mm-hmm. You're you're the vocalist. You you're, right. you sing on all the tracks. Correct. But, but you, did you? Is it true that you had intentions to have both Jimmy Jameson and Fergie Fredrickson sing on some of these tracks? They were on the record. They, they were, were for sure going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I guess you know w- with their passing and and you know did you did you take a slightly different direction with with some of the music? I mean, that's catering to maybe uh, more of the things that you have vocally. And were other singers considered uh, to complement your singing on this new album? 
There was a song uh, that we cut. I'm losing the name, but we had already cut it. I put it up online, just the musical bit of it. Really great heavy track. I wrote it with, with Jameson. Lyrically, I wrote it with him. Mm-hmm. The music was my son and Bill Sinar okay. had written it. And again, great, huge riff-driven thing. Shannon killed on it. Hungate killed on the track. Mm-hmm. But I knew I couldn't sing it the way that Jimmy would have sang it. Mm-hmm. So I decided to leave it off the record. Um and I got a bunch of crap online for you. Oh, how can you hold this stuff from us that you know Jimmy wrote? Jimmy's not going to sing it, mm-hmm, so that's mm-hmm. where it was written for that. So unless he's going to come back and sing it, you know, and maybe I'll use it on the next one, but I'll have somebody else sing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and Fergie was going to sing on the record, but he was he was really getting ill. You know, this was at the end. Um, it was really hard, you know, to see. I mean, you know, we saw him right a couple weeks before he passed. Oh wow, we. We took him on his last, you know, he's a big boater. Mm-hmm. So we literally had to pick him up and put him in the boat. Really? Um, and then he drove us around and almost killed me um, <laughs> on uh, <laughs> this lake by his house. And, you know, he's got this thing wide open. I'm like, he wants to go on his boat. He wants to die in his boat with me in it. <laughs> and, and, you know, I'm afraid of water. I'm afraid of everything. And I'm like, ah! And uh, but he had a ball, and then he passed just like literally almost right after that. Mm -hmm. Um, He had really done a great 180 with his life. He really had. I mean, he had uh, he buried everything. He was he was doing really well. I mean, mentally, he was in the best place he'd probably ever been in his life. Mm -hmm. And then he passed. Wow. Yeah. And we always like to get technical a little bit. Um, You know, tell us about Shannon Studio. I mean, he's got a phenomenal place in Nashville. Yeah, he's, talk to us about um, that, and and your and your using of your the, your trusty Neumann, which you uh, you sort of favor for your vocals. It's weird. It's only about a thousand dollar mic. Um, <laughs> which one is it? The one hundred and three. That yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. got one around here. I just used wow. it today. Yeah, and <laughs> for me, um, I've sang through eighty sevens. I've sang through forty sevens. Um, I've sang through the euphonics. You know, twenty five thousand uh, dollar microphones. Mm-hmm. I've never heard a mo- voice, a vocal that I can, I, or a, a microphone that I can sing into, and it literally does a little bit of compression. It seems like on its own, yeah. and I, I'm able to pound. I sing really crazy loud, and I can do that, but it doesn't sound like I'm singing the S- crazy loud. The SPL loud. on that mic's pretty high. Yeah. Well, I need that. Yeah. So. Um, I just really, it's weird. I, I sing through the mic. I like it, so I won't sing through anything else. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot, of, a lot of better mics. I'm probably singing through a better, I'm talking through a better mic now, but <laughs> I like what that mic does. Yeah, yeah. Um, I use Daking uh, mic prees, mm-hmm. which I have great rivers, mm-hmm. which are a lot like the Neumanns, mm-hmm. I mean the uh, Neves, but I like the sound of the Daking. So I use the Daking Pre 1, I think it's called, with the. Um, with the Neumann, mm-hmm. and then I go straight into the. We have the good focus right liquid, whatever mm-hmm. um, interface, and that's it. Because all I did was bring raw vocals. I'd send the raw track to Shannon, and then of course it would go through the stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, it would get after before it laid down a two inch. He ran it through his manly voc, uh, vox box with this, with that, with this API, sure. with this LA two A, with this, with the. Right. It was all you know. Because again, we weren't using a bunch of plugins, right. so. It it all sounded you know pretty fantastic. I thought. So your your recording philosophy. Yes. From where you are right now. Yes. With the you know with Mega Three. Yes. It's changed. You're pointing a new direction as to how you make an album. No. 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 It's an old direction that lost its way about fifteen years ago. Okay, I get you. Um, 
Here's what happened. About 10 or 15 years ago, the, the, the melodic rock industry, if you will, collapsed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was two reasons why. One was fans and two was the artists. The fans stopped buying the records because the artists stopped giving them good records to listen to. Um, again, when you're doing crappy sounding albums with, with drum machines and program drums to a grid with plugins with the guitars, the guitars aren't even amped. They're going through – again, my kid should be here. He can go over us. <laughs> but anyway, you plug it in, right. amp farm, whatever. Right, right. And you know, there's, no, there's no soul. There's no vibe with this stuff. I mean the closest thing to that, they, they make this thing called the Kemper, which is really neat. You play mm-hmm. through that. But that's you playing through it and everything. It's got a great sound. You, it's a modeler. Mm-hmm. Um, that's great. But all this other stuff is, is insanity. And, you know, it's, it's ruined the music business. Mm-hmm. Um, so I decided that, you know, every album I heard I didn't like. Before I even listened to it, I didn't like it <laughs> because I knew how they recorded it. Right. And you can't go into making a pizza with a crust made of carpet and think it's going to be a good tasting pizza. I know it's already going to suck because <laughs> the base is made of carpet. So it's going to suck. Yeah. Um, so I didn't want to go into this record starting with carpet. You know, I wanted to start it with what it's supposed to be. And, um, you know, the ingredients are important and who's mixing the ingredients are important and all those things are important. I didn't want to stumble and make the wrong mistake on a song production-wise that I knew the songs were really strong. So I went backwards. I took it back to maybe eh, 85, 86. You know, we recorded through a big SSL 4000 at Shannon's house. Um, crazy amounts of outboard gear and just wanted to make sure that it sounded deep. Now, what I mean by that is there's there's soundstage, there's width, and there's all these things that matter. As an, I'm an audiophile, so mm-hmm, we, we mm-hmm. listen to really weird stuff. I have a crazy system at home, and I want to be able to hear the vocalist in front, center, but I want to hear the drums 15 feet behind the vocalist, okay? I want to hear the bass player here. I want to hear the guitar player here. The background singer's over here. I want to literally be me facing the band that I can hear everybody's at. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with an album, uh, Toy Matinee. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> Frightening record. It is. It's my cool. favorite engineered record, period. That and Peter Gabriel's So. Those are my two. And um, I wanted that. I wanted a record that you can hear everything. Why lay down a great performance if, if the people aren't going to be able to hear it well? And I think now it's with earbuds and crappy headphones and you know people don't care. Um, there's still a group of us that care. Mm-hmm. how things sound. It's, and, it's our listeners here. Yeah, so I wanted to record <laughs> no. it. I wanted a record that, because um, I'm pitching it to Stereophile. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, we've already talked to them. Um, and I think this is one of those audiophile recordings where we record, this is being released on vinyl. Um, right. And I talked to the plant. They're going to give me 20 of the 180 gram yeah. master CD, master vinyls. Um, I'm going to give those to friends and stuff like that that are really into I'm it. I'm a friend, by the way. Yeah, that's fine. I love you, Joe. You have a turntable hooked up? <laughs> I do, absolutely, okay. at home. Excellent. Yeah, right. Not here, but at home. <laughs> what kind? It's a... Uh, I just bought it. It's it's a new. It's not a hot real super high end, mm-hmm. but it's a, it's a TAC, and I don't know the number. Okay. It just came out, but it's a pretty sweet little turntable. Yeah, They're, I just love vinyl. I've got but, two. I've got a Thorins and a B and O. The B and O, but the Thorins. B and O. Oh no! You gotta oh, get no. the you gotta get the right needles for those, <laughs> and you can only, you only can use their needles for their arms. A long time ago, I bought plenty of those. Oh, <laughs> back in the day, what was it the five thousand, the four thousand? But the um. 
the thing about vinyl, you know, again, people don't understand that vinyl reproduces overtones and digital doesn't. A digital signature is straight edged. Mm -hmm. An analog signal has a bend. So you can never get those turns with digital. So a, a digital can never sound as good as analog, no matter how you cut it, no matter how. Yeah, it doesn't click. It doesn't pop. It's louder. None of that means it sounds good. So I wanted a record that was going to be – that would sound fantastic and would sound up to the par of the records that I loved. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was a really difficult process. It was hard because when you're reverse engineering or you're doing something that used to be done years ago and everyone's fighting you to do it the way that it's done now, it's, it makes it that much harder. So when you when you track the album at Shannon's studio, yes. does, does, does he track it digitally or does he go to tape? No, we tracked it to two inch. Did you? This is really? a, this is an analog recording, and okay. it's even the, the even neater part about it is everybody played together. Yeah. So this wasn't sent in parts. I was the sent in part. Now I was there, but I didn't even sing a guide vocal with them when they recorded. So I literally we got the music right and. I shouldn't say this now because Shannon will probably get mad, but I didn't even have melodies written for these songs when we recorded them. I knew I'd figure it out yeah. when we got to it. And um, I had lyrical content set up, but a lot of the melodies came from where the musicians took the songs. Mm-hmm. Um, but we recorded it as a band, and to me it sounds like that. It has that sound, that old Steely Dan thing where it literally sounds like four or five guys in a room mm-hmm. playing mm-hmm. together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what I wanted. Yeah. yeah. And I had lost my way for a number of years, and finally, you know, we got back there with this record. I th- again, I think that's what makes this record so different, is it literally sounds better. Well, speaking if you don't like the songs, it's fine. It sounds better. Mm-hmm. It does. It's a really phenomenal oh, recording. Yeah. I thought it sounded great. And and I think speaking of, you know, getting four or five guys in a room, do you guys ever perform your Mecca stuff live? Have you in the past? No, that requires people watching me sing. I don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's that bad. Um been offered tours. I've been offered gigs with pretty sizable bands to sing for them. Mm-hmm. Um, I've said no so many times for the years. People must think I'm a nun. <laughs> um, and it's not just the perfectionist thing where I like to sit down in my own environment and sing. Um, I'm a singer who's first a creator versus a singer where I like to create the parts. Mm-hmm. I The most fun part for me of music is creating the vocal parts and creating the lyrical content and marrying those to the music. Mm-hmm. My most fun thing is not sitting there. I don't get the most enjoyment from sitting there and having people clap that they love the music. Mm-hmm. I like when they tell me that they like the stuff, but that interaction is kind of – it's in, it, a lot of guys said, oh, this is when they feel personally attached to the people. I feel more detached when I'm having to do that because I'm too worried about what I'm doing. Mm. I'm not enjoying that process. I'm not attached yeah. to anybody when I'm up there singing live. Right. I'm too busy worrying about am I singing correctly? Am I doing this? Am I doing that? Right. The drummer's this. The, you know, I, those are too many variables for me. <laughs> so I like to just create. Um, will we ever? We're probably going to have to next year. Um, you know, everything seems to be going pretty well, but um, it'd have to be the right environment yeah. And the right situation. Yeah. Sure. Um, yeah. I man, we did we did one show, Melodic Rock Fest. I sang with the lyrics on a chair in front of me. Um, I can't remember the lyrics to my own songs the day after I write them. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, I mean, I know Luke. All these guys, everybody's got prompters. Yeah. Well, I never prompter. My prompter was a chair with the <laughs> lyrics written there. Um, so yeah, seeing us play was not like you know watching a. 
you know, a Pink Floyd show, let's just say. But, um, <laughs> you know, it would have to be, it'd have to be done right. Yeah. Um, and I, I'd only do it with certain guys. You know, I'd have to make sure it was the guys doing it with me. I sure. wouldn't just grab a bunch of guys. You can't grab a bunch of guys and go out and do this material. Yeah. You really couldn't. Mm-hmm. I just imagine some guy trying to play Shannon's part, another guy trying to play Hungate's part. Good <laughs> luck, you know. Um, so, yeah. So I would. it would just have to be the right situation. Interesting, interesting. Well, hey, guys, uh, before we run out of time here, I do want to play one more track from the uh, new Mecca 3 album. And uh, this is the track that, Joe, you alluded to earlier that was um, – you said this song was one of your favorite songs that you've ever written. And this is the track Alone by our guest today, Joe Vanna, from the new Mecca 3 album on Inside Music Cast.
So now that it's been released, uh, what's next for you? I mean, in terms of looking at the remainder of the year and, and in 2017, do you have any other uh, projects lined up, musically speaking? Well, possibly Mecca 4. Mm-hmm. Um, I've already talked to the producer mm-hmm. who wants to produce it. Um, you guys have met him. Uh, he produced the last one. But, um, <laughs> you know, and Tim wants to be involved mm-hmm. as well. Um, so I'm, I'm talking with Tim about production as well and different things on how we would do things. Um, but I think in the end is it, you know, probably Shannon be the guy running the, the ship. Yeah. Um, would Hungate come back or is he sort of laying low now? Hungate's yeah. retired. Yeah, I know he's retired, but would he? He's s- retired. Completely. Really? No, Gary Lunn is going to do the next record. I see. Okay. So I've already fine, talked to Gary. Gary did the bass on the Richard Page tune on the record. All that fretless is all Gary. It's he is, he's one of my best players. Yeah, he's a freak, but a super nice guy. Yep. And uh, so I think probably that, um, start writing more. I've never really got to the situation where I've been writing a lot for other people. I've always been where I just write for me. So that's what I was going to ask you. I'm like, you know, with with where you are with live performances, that kind of stuff, it seems as if you're at the cre- you're parked very nicely in the creative stage. Right. And that seems to be a place where you probably could be very well positioned from a producer perspective even. I am now. You I know? wasn't then. Right, but the evolution has brought you to that right. point in time where as a creator and producer, it's going to open a whole new platform. Yeah, and actually, yeah, you're right, because with the with the three records now together as a, as a solid whole. As a portfolio. That's almost. a pretty good portfolio. Yeah, it is. Um, we don't really have any weak material. It's, it's all done well. Um, and the technique's there. Yeah. So... But again, I think I'd need to decide to to commit yeah. to that. Um, you know, I need to market the record over the next you know five six months, get that part done. Um, but I would say in seventeen, it would be either starting the new record or touring off of three. Um, one of those two things will happen. Yeah, very cool. I mean, I'd like to say that we'll probably do Mecca Four, um, and I think it. I think of all the four records, four will sound more like three than any of the other records sounding alike. Because mm-hmm. I think f- three really sounds the way I want a record to sound. So that's good. I'm, I'm okay with that as a template. And we're okay so. with it too. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so again, uh, album was released on October 14th. Mm-hmm. And where, can, where can people find it? Uh, well, the webs- our website is mechatheband.com. Mm-hmm. It's going to be available on there as well as uh, melodicrockrecords.com, okay. which is, uh, I think it's MR. Our records or melodicrockrecords.com. Okay. Um, that's Andrew McNeese's site. Um, I chose to give it to him instead of going with Frontiers in this one because I felt the material, I didn't want to get lost with a bunch of, you know, records that are put out by four guys throwing the music down and they just pay a singer a couple thousand dollars to sing on it. And that's their record, right. you know, use, utilizing somebody's old demos. So I didn't want to be lost in that shuffle over there. Sure. So um, I decided to give it to Andrew, and it's worked out probably better that way. Perfect, perfect. Yeah. So, yep. Well, Joe, thanks for uh, driving all the way from Chicago. We don't sometimes uh, get an often uh, opportunity to record live in session, and we've been doing that. And people can see our, some of the photos that we're going to be posting on our, on our site. But uh, thanks for driving down. This has been a great, great treat for us, and we know you're going to do well with Mecca 3. Absolutely. Thanks Thank so much. Thank you. No, yeah. I appreciate the time. And like I said, I've been, I've been downloading your guys' stuff for <laughs> forever, so I'm uh, more than happy to do it. Plus, you guys actually push all the music that I like, so which is hard to find these days. So yeah. I know people can go to your website, listen to your interviews, and it's going to be all the same type of great music. So 
Oh, yeah. To add to that too, real quick, you know, we have Inside Music Cast Radio, and I've already talked to you about the idea of maybe putting a couple of your new tracks up on yeah. Inside Music. You Cast. could put Wonderful. anything you want up there. So uh, be Wonderful. listening for that too. Absolutely. Yeah. Joe, thanks a lot. All right, Thank care. you. Appreciate it. Special thanks to Jovanna of Mecca for joining us on this episode of Inside MusicCast. We'd also like to thank our correspondents, Brian Pearson, Kim Riley, Scott Gross, Loretta Sassaman, Scott Sheriff, Don Brightup, Yinka Oyelese, and Arnaud Legere for their support and content development. For the best in West Coast AOR, pop, jazz, and funk, tune in to Inside MusicCast Radio. Download the streaming app for Android and iOS devices or listen at InsideMusicCast.com. Inside MusicCast is powered by Earshot Audio Post and Cabello Associates. If you'd like to support Inside MusicCast, all you need to do is shop at Amazon. There's no extra cost to you, and your purchases will support future Inside MusicCast content. Simply visit InsideMusicCast.com and click on the Amazon banner. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside MusicCast and Inside MusicCast Radio. Inside MusicCast.